But I'm going to go ahead and get started because if I don't, I'm not going to get through what I get through. So um, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this day that you've given us, um, this hot day in the middle of February, to come together and to study your word. And um, would you bless us by your word? Would you show us the way that the word um, saves us and redeems us um, and how your Holy Spirit works through that, as well as through the sacraments uh, for our, our sanctification? We ask that you would um, enlighten us tonight and teach us to respond in faith uh, to your gospel offers. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, like, a, what I've got in front of you here is, this is parts of the larger catechism, um, and my plan is, I'm, I'm just going to go, we're not going to talk about all the questions, there are certain questions that aren't um, c- completely relevant or they're non-controversial, um, so they're not, we're not going to dwell on all of these questions for too long, but I'm just going to start in question 154, and we're just going to go through each question, and um, We'll see how far we can get. I would love to get through the sacraments today because um, I want to talk about church and state a little bit. And I've only got one week left. So <laughs> we'll, we'll see how far we can get. And if we don't finish sacraments, we may just move on anyway um, because that's important too. So um, I'm also going to be, I would have a pen ready. I was working on putting together a handout with, with all these drawings in it, but it was getting cumbersome because. You know, I'm drawing a bunch of stuff. So I decided I was just going to draw it for you, and it's going to be probably more illuminating if you see it drawn in front of you while we're doing it. Um, but I would keep your pen out, get ready to, to draw that stuff as we do it. So, but um, before we go here, I'm just going to mention a couple of things briefly about the church, uh, which was I was intending on doing at the end of last week. But um, I can just make a couple of brief comments that will kind of illuminate um, what we want to talk about. So, because it's important when we talk about sacraments, which we're, we're going to get to, the sacraments are part of what defines a church. So, um, our confession of faith says that a true church is a church where the gospel is rightly preached, where the word of God is rightly preached, where the sacraments are rightly administered, and where church discipline is practiced, which church discipline is just really related to the sacraments, right? So, to be under church discipline would be to be barred from the Lord's Supper is. So those kind of go together. But so word and sacrament is what defines what a church is. So um, if you have somebody like a, at a Mormon church, um, they're not a true church under the gospel. You know, they may look a lot like a church. They may gather together. They may do some rituals that look pretty Christian. Um, all sorts of things that make it, make it look like a Christian church. But if the gospel is not rightly preached, that's not a true church. Same thing with, um, you know, we love our Salvation Army brothers and sisters, but um, they don't do sacraments. And so we would say that's not really a church because you have to have baptism and the Lord's Supper to be considered a church under the gospel because baptism and the Lord's Supper define what the church is. So um, when we talk about the church, we really talk, we're talking about two different coexisting realities. So on one hand, you have the visible church, and on the other hand, you have the invisible church. Now, I think those are a little bit misleading terms, but... Um, we can look at, let's go ahead and flip to Romans 9 to look at that. Um, in Romans 9, Paul makes a very clear statement of this um, distinction. When he's talking about election, and we're not going to dive too deep into that, but. <clears throat> so he's talking about um, what are, what's the role of the Jews in this whole salvation thing. And he's talking about how, how the Jews have, they're the ones that have brought to us the word of God. They, they're the, the ones who the covenant was made with before. And so without the, without the Jewish faith and without the Jewish people, you can't have Christianity. And so the, it comes out of the Jews. But it's, and Paul is going on to explain, it's not as though God's throwing off the Jews and saying they don't matter anymore, right? He's, he's arguing for their um, importance and value to the church. And this is what he says in Romans 9, starting in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So, um, 
if you have, he's, he's made two categories, right? He's talking about the visible covenant of Israel, right? Israel is a nation that is in covenant with God. And when you're born into Israel, um, baby boys are circumcised. That's part of being brought into Israel, which would correlate to baptism in the new covenant. If you're part of Israel, you get to participate in Israel's feasts. And in particular, adult males are called to, they're required to participate in Israel's feasts. There are dispensations made for particularly women with small children and things like that. But um, being part of Israel means being part of the visible community of Israel. But, as we well know, not everybody who is a member of the nation of Israel, not everybody who is a member of the church of Israel, the, the religious worship in Israel, is part of God's eternal covenant. Not everybody that was part of, a part of the nation was a part of the nation in heaven, the firstborn who enrolled in heaven. And so we make this distinction between uh, the visible church and the invisible church. And it comes out like a Venn diagram. Um, and we'll get to this in a second, but to be a part of the visible church, all that requires is baptism. So baptism puts you into the visible church. If I can spell visible right. Um, baptism puts you into the visible church. Faith is what puts you into the invisible church. So, put a little dash there, I guess. Um, is everybody that is baptized certainly saved? No. Baptism does not, does not give us an automatic entrance into heaven, right? That requires faith. And so what you end up with is three different categories of people, and really four different categories of people. First, you have um, those that are unregenerate and baptized. So these are people who don't have faith, but they are baptized. And they are a part of the church. Then you also have people, God doesn't, isn't restrained to baptism and restrained to the visible church. So you also have people who are regenerate and unbaptized. There's people like this in the Bible, the Ethiopian eunuch. He was saved. He, was, um, he had faith in Jesus before he was baptized. And so there are people who are regenerate and unbaptized. But then you also have people who are regenerate and baptized. Now, there, there isn't objectively the best place, objectively the best place to be is to be regenerate and baptized, right? You want to be a part of the invisible church, yes. But you also want to be a part of the visible church. You want to be a part of God's community of believers. Now, um, there's also, I, I guess, a couple other categories of people. There are people who are unregenerate and unbaptized, and they're out here too. Um, and so, so they don't have, um, they don't have any communion with the church. So they're totally outside of the church, and they're all, all out here. So, um, when we're thinking about sacraments, and I know it looks like I circled the, the diagram there. Sorry about that. But <laughs> when, when we're thinking about the sacraments, it's important to keep this in mind because um, the sacraments are particularly associated with the visible church, but there is also an association with the invisible church, with those who are truly regenerate. Now, there is a little bit of a confusion about this with some people about visible versus invisible church um, because we can't see the invisible church, and that's part of the point. Um, and in fact, if you, if you look at what the confessions and catechisms say about, about this, really when we're talking about the invisible church, we're talking about an eschatological reality, an end times reality. So um, the invisible church is not just people who are regenerate today on earth. It's everyone who was saved, who is saved, or who will be saved is part of the invisible church, right? So it includes past, present, future, and it's a picture of the, the it's God's perfect picture of what the church is because God, remember, sees outside of all time. He's not constrained to our time. But the visible church is a physical, earthly representation of the invisible church. And um, you'll, we'll get, it's sacramental in a sense. We'll talk about sacraments in a second. But sacraments have a 
visible sign and an invisible reality. The, the church on earth, the visible church, is the visible sign of the invisible reality, which is the, the eschatological or invisible church. So maybe another way to think about this, and, and Paul actually uses this image in um, Romans 11. Paul talks about an olive tree. Now people are grafted in and cut off. So that's starting in Romans 11, uh, verse 11. I'm not going to read that. but So maybe a, maybe a better way to think about this is to think of the church like a tree. So in God's mind, there's this ultimate grand, I'm actually not sure what olive trees look like, so, but let's, let's, let's say that's an olive tree because that's Paul's image. The church in, in God's mind looks like this, looks like a full-grown tree, a big tree full of all the people in, in, that are ever going to be saved. But you'll remember the, the church is also, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. That's what Jesus says. And so the church, a couple thousand years ago, started as a mustard seed, and over time it grows up into a bigger reality. So um, maybe the best way to think about this in terms of visible and invisible church is not necessarily that we have two coexisting churches that sit on top of each other, but that what the visible church is doing is becoming, over time, the invisible church. And eventually what's going to happen is the, the visible church is going to be, and this is what Jesus talks about in the Last Judgment, he's going to go out and he's going to weed, weed out all the weeds. All the, the tares that grow up in the wheat he's going to remove, and the church will be purified and will grow up into maturity. And so um, both of those things are, are, are kind of, we're dealing with the present reality that there, there are people that are unregenerate and part of our church, um, but not necessarily our church. I don't know about that, but that's kind of the point. Um, but there's also the future reality that we're growing into this, um, into this new final um, church that God has called us to be um, through a process of grafting and pruning, which is the language Paul uses in Romans 11. Does that all make sense? So, um, so that's the church. And the, and the sacraments are a very important part of this because the sacraments define who is in and, side of, in and out of the visible church. So... To become a member of our church, you have to be baptized, right? And so that's God's prescribed means of, of church membership being counted is through baptism, and that's renewed through communion, okay? So let's move on to that. Um, by the way, another passage you can look at for, for this if you want to think about visible, invisible church is Ephesians 5. That's another passage you can look at. But Romans 9 through 11 is really unpacking this. Um, and it helps us make sense of Romans 11. Um, I've, I have been a Baptist before, and I've met many Baptists who have a... It, for them, Romans 11 is indecipherable. Because <laughs> um, if, you don't have a, if you don't have a doctrine of continuity between Israel and the church, um, if, you don't have a, if you don't see the church as the true continuation of Israel, um, then it, makes, it doesn't make sense that the Jews would be cut off and you'd be grafted back in. It, it's very, very hard to understand. Um, but if you see it, an essential continuity between those things, it makes, it makes a lot more sense. Um, also notice there's one tree, not two trees. Right? There's one tree, which is the family of God, which is the church of God, the kingdom of God, not two. So, um, which we won't, we actually, if you have questions about it, feel free to ask them and stop me. But we're not going to actually talk about infant baptism that much tonight because uh, it's, it's kind of more accidental to the rest of the, the discussion. But um, a lot of, Infant baptism for, the, for a Reformed person comes out of a lot of other background issues that um, factor into our discussion of baptism. So um, when, we, when we come to a, dis- a discussion of the proper recipients of baptism, we have already have, have in the background this idea of covenant. We already have this in the background the idea of uh, Romans 11, where people are grafted in, cut off. Um, we've already got all this discussion in the background about what baptism is, because we have a different definition of what baptism is than um, a Baptist would, for example. Um, and so all, all that stuff kind of implies infant baptism and, and drives us toward infant baptism. Um, not necessarily that we can point to a verse, although I, I can point you to verses if you want me to, but generally speaking, we, we wouldn't point to a, a single verse that says, you may baptize the infants of believers. So um, we'll talk about that more in a minute if you guys are interested. Um, and it'll kind of come up naturally as we go through this. So, 
So, but tonight it's called Word and Sacrament. So we're going to talk about words, the, the Word of God and sacraments. So let's, let's start by just looking at uh, what the Catechism says, starting in question 154. Um, again, remember, if you have the big print, it's out of order. If you have the small print, it's in order, but um, pick your poison. But question 154, what are the external ways Christ uses to bring us the benefits of his mediation? Now, to back up a second, what that means is that there are external ways that Christ brings us his mediation. And that's not um, universally accepted, but um, that would seem to be self-evident by the fact that God gives us these physical signs and, and seals, right? So um, Christ is doing something in baptism and communion. It's not just a, an empty sign, which is the accusation uh, that Roman Catholics, for example, make against certain Reformed people. Um, there's actually... Christ uses these means. Christ uses the things that we have access to on earth to um, bring us benefits of his mediation. But here's what it says. Answer to question 154. The ordinary external ways Christ uses to bring the benefits of his mediation to his church are his regulations, particularly the word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effective for the salvation of his chosen ones. So, these are the things, the word and the sacraments, are the way that God brings us salvation through earthly means. Now, what that's not saying, we'll talk about this more, is that God is required to use earthly means to bring us salvation. Um, now that, but that does mean that it's the ordinary way. So, for example, there's lots of um, Muslims who learn about Christianity through dreams. This is really common in, in places like Saudi Arabia, where... Um, Christian evangelism is not legal, and it's very hard to even find a Christian. Um, you'll have Muslims having dreams about Jesus. And um, if you've ever read, um, his name is Nabil Qureshi. He, he, he died very young of uh, pancreatic cancer, but, or stomach cancer, I can't remember. But that's part of his story. He was a Muslim, and um, he had a dream about Jesus, and that's, that's how he came to faith. So I'm, what I'm not saying is that it is absolutely necessary that God work through these means. But for most people, that this is how God works. The way that God reveals the gospel to you is through his word preached. The way that God reveals the gospel to you is through his sacraments, baptism and communion. And so um, these are the external means by which God, by which Christ brings us benefits of his mediation. So I think this is a little bit easier to swallow with the word of God. Um, it's, it's easier for us to see how the word affects salvation, how the word brings about salvation. It's harder to see that with um, sacraments. And we'll, we'll unpack exactly how that works in a minute. But um, what I want to do first is we'll, we'll keep going through the catechism here. Because I think if you understand how the word brings about salvation, it's, it, it helps us um, kind of wrap our heads around the sacramental stuff. So, question 155. What makes the word, the word of God, effective for salvation? The spirit of God causes the reading and especially the preaching of the word to enlighten, convince, and humble sinners. The spirit drives sinners out of themselves and draws them to Christ. He conforms into his image and he subdues them to his will. He strengthens them against temptations and corrupting influences and he builds them up in God's grace and establishes their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith to salvation. Now, you'll remember last week we talked about how salvation is not just justification. Salvation is not just conversion. Salvation is a whole package deal of a lot of stuff. And so you actually see how the Holy Spirit is working through the Word to do this. Now, when the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to convict us of our sin, to bring us to Christ, to show us Christ in the gospel, um, it's the Holy Spirit working, but the Word is also working, right? So last week I used the example of a screwdriver, right? If, if I take a screwdriver and I start to, to drive a screw into the wood, um, there's a sense in which I'm doing it, but there's a sense in which you could also say that the screwdriver is doing it, right? And so the Holy Spirit uses the Word to drive the gospel into us. And so um, it's an instrument that, that God uses to bring it about. Um, so, but, but God ultimately, the Spirit of God, is ultimately the source of that. 
Um, some key passages to look at. Let's go ahead and go to, to Psalm 19. And I'll try not to dwell too long on some of these. We'll, we'll probably just hit one or two passages on all of these and, and move on. But Psalm 19 is primarily about the Word of God. <clears throat> and um, so Psalm 19, starting in verse 7, tells us what the Word of God does. And by the way, the law of the Lord in David's day when he's writing this, the Scriptures consisted of the law. Then that was it. So starting in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. So, David says, the law of the Lord revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It gives rejoicing to the heart. It enlightens the eyes. Now, who is the ultimate source of all of those things? God is. The Spirit of God is working through the Word. But there's a sense in which, Paul, in which David can say, yes, um, the Word is doing these things as well. And so we're wrestling with both of those realities, that yes, the Word comes to us as an author of the gospel, and um, the, the Holy Spirit works through that. But that's just on the objective side of things. There's also a reception that we have to make of the Word of God. So if we go to question 160, um, by the way, I don't know if you guys caught this, there's, there, there's two pieces of paper. One of them is larger print and out of order. One of them is smaller print and in order. So, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but... So question 160, <clears throat> this is a way, and when the word of God is preached, the spirit is working all the time, right? So it's not as if, um, the, the, so there's an objective reality behind it. It's not just that the, the hearts of believers are the only ones that are impacted, right? The hearts of unbelievers are also impacted by the word of God, but uh, to use the language of Philippians, their consciences are seared. So the word of God becomes a... Um, First Corinthians language, the gospel is the fragrance of life to those who desire life and the fragrance of death to those who don't. So the Holy Spirit is working in both ways in all people, and he's revealing himself to all people. But we are, recall, we are required um, to receive the word. So question 160, um, what is required of those who hear the word preached? Those who hear the word preached must pay careful attention to it, prepare themselves and pray for understanding. They should review carefully what they hear through the Bible and accept the truths in it faithfully, lovingly, and humbly and with a ready mind, treating it as it is, the Word of God. They should meditate on it, talk about it, hide it in their hearts, and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. And so the Holy Spirit offers us Christ, offers us salvation through the Word of God, but we are called to receive it. Now the Holy Spirit is working to do that too. We're not on our own in receiving it. Um, but, but there's an objective offer and a subjective reception. So not all receive the gospel, not all receive the word of God in the same way. Um, there's a subjectivity to it. So and we'll talk about this again when we get to the sacraments, but in the sacraments there are objective realities and subjective realities, things that are true no matter what, and things that are reliant on the faith of the recipient. And so the word of God affects salvation in those who have faith in it, in those who respond in faith to the word of God. But again, ultimately, in the background of all of this, the Holy Spirit is working through the Word to make this happen. So the Word on its own um, isn't going to do anything. The Holy Spirit needs to be involved in this. It needs to be involved in your reading. That's why in worship, for example, you'll see there's a prayer of illumination. What we mean by that is we're asking the Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to show us Scripture. So the Holy Spirit shows us the right way to read Scripture, teaches us to respond to it faithfully, and affects salvation in our hearts through it. <clears throat> any questions about that like I said that's, that's the uncontroversial one that the, the word of God is, is effective for salvation so any questions or thoughts there okay
Now let's get to the, the thornier one, starting in question 161. How do the sacraments become effective means of salvation? Answer, the sacraments become effective means of salvation, not by any power in them, or by any inherent potency coming from the devoutness or the intention of whoever administers them, but rather by the working of the Holy Spirit and the blessing of Christ who established them. So notice, the mechanism by which the sacraments become effectual means of salvation is exactly the same with the Word and the sacraments. So the Spirit makes the Word of God effective for salvation, question 161. The Spirit makes the sacraments effective for salvation. So um, we're going to look at a couple of passages, and for the moment I'm probably just going to lay these out here and let you chew on them a little bit. But um, key one, and too many people avoid this passage, but 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, this is a passage about baptism. And it presents some um, complications for, for some people. So, <clears throat> so 1 Peter 3. Um, let's start in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they did not formally obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, I would say that too many people read this passage. And, you know, I've I've said this before. My number one rule for interpreting the Bible is that the Bible never means the opposite of what it says. And so too many people look at this passage and it says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And they close their Bible and they say, well, of course, baptism doesn't save you. <laughs> and I've, anytime somebody preaches through that, I'm always waiting for this, like, are they going to do that or are they going to deal with the passage? Um, so a couple different ways people have dealt with this, and you know, there are ways that are better than others, but most commonly people will probably think about this as spirit baptism baptism by the Holy Spirit. My argument against that is that um, that's not a category that you really see in the New Testament with the exception of a couple passages in John. So when the, when the apostles are writing their epistles and they refer to baptism, I think our best way to read that is just to assume that they mean baptism and not something else. There's also a clear reference to water, right? Baptism doesn't save you as a removal of dirt from the body. So there's an there's a explicit link between the word baptism and a washing with water in this passage. But clearly, baptism has some impact on your salvation. It's doing something. The question is, what is it doing? Um, but if you look at, uh, just in, it's all in the same verse, the next part of that verse, baptism saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So again, the Holy Spirit is the one working here. Holy Spirit is the one that makes this effective. Another thing to think about, too, when you're reading um, these New Testament epistles, and we'll look at some other passages that deal with baptism in a second, um, they are writing to communities. They are not writing to individuals. So certainly there are individual applications, and those are important. Um, But in this case, baptism now saves you. That's plural. It's talking about the, the community of believers that baptism saves. And he's talking about an ark which saved eight people. So, um, it's very common in in lots of Christian imagery and stuff to think of the church as the ark, right? How are you saved? You get on board with the church. And the way you do that is through baptism. Um, But I'm I'm digressing into baptism a little too much here. So we'll we'll talk about that more in detail in a second. But um, clearly baptism plays some role in salvation or else Peter wouldn't have said that. So we have to work out what exactly that means. And the catechism clearly says that the spirit 
is the one who works. Another place to look is Acts 8. Um, I think I preached on this like six or seven months ago, but in Acts 8, you have two uh, key, key characters. About, it's about this juxtaposition between two men. On the one hand, you have Simon the Magi, and on the other hand, you have um, the Ethiopian eunuch. So, <clears throat> in Acts 8, this is Philip's chapter. Philip is the key uh, he's, a, he's a deacon. He's not even a, an apostle. But um, Philip goes and he's, he's dealing with um, Simon the Magi. So Simon the Magi, he sees, um, um, he sees Philip and he believes Philip as Philip preaches the gospel. And then verse 13 of Acts 8, even Simon himself believed, Simon this magician. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So here he is, um, baptized. And um, we're also dealing with this reality, though, that um, he's still a sinner. So they go on, they're moving around. And then Philip, or Simon the Magician, eventually offers money um, to Peter for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so, starting in verse 19, um, Simon says to Peter, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before the Lord. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven. For I see that you are in the the gall of bitterness, and then the, the bond of iniquity. And so there's this disjunction here between um, the baptism that Simon received and his own um, state. So part of what, and when you look at this passage in, in context of the larger catechism question, part of what the larger catechism is saying is that um, baptism does not take its effect from the spirit of the one being baptized, right? Um, that, there's something powerful about baptism independent of that, and, um, we'll get to that in a second, but that applies to both sacraments. There's something powerful there that's independent of the, the believer. Um, and you can see that in, in Acts, 8, uh, Acts, 13, uh, Acts 8, 13, and 23, because you can see this man who has been baptized, and um, Luke, who's the writer of Acts, is saying this is, has value in some sense, but um, Simon doesn't have the Holy Spirit. He's, he's looking for the Holy Spirit, and... Um, He's in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. So, um, again, I'll unpack some of that later when we get to baptism in just a minute. So, but let's go ahead and move on to 162. Um, well, let me let's let's pause before I do that. Let me draw this picture. So, <laughs> um, what we, what do we what we mean when we talk about the effect of the effective nature of sacraments? Um, what, what the confession and catechisms do is this, is this is a fence around what's allowed by Scripture, what's allowed by the confessions and catechisms. And so we want to avoid extremes. So on the one hand, part of what question 161 um, rules out is a pure subjectivity, right? So it's saying that it's not reliant on the devoutness or intention of, the, of whoever administers them, right? Or by the power coming from, from them. Um, so if, for example, you're baptized by a pastor who later apostatizes, who later turns away from the faith, um, you are still baptized. There are a whole big controversies about this in, the, in Augustine's time. But um, baptism is not reliant on the effectiveness of the pastor is reliant on um, other things. And generally we would say you need to be baptized with water. You need to be baptized in the name of the triune God. Not necessarily that somebody has to say in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but you have to be baptized in a Christian church is what that means. And you have to be baptized with the intention of it being a baptism. So um, if, I, if, a, if a pastor accidentally spills water on you, that's not a baptism, right? So you have to, there has to be an, an intent to baptize in that. So... Um, 
But we avoid this idea that there's pure subjectivity, that like everybody's heart has to be in the right place for it to work. On the other hand, we want to avoid the other side of the ditch where we have pure objectivity. Where, and this is where Rome would land, um, where no matter what you do, no matter how you receive it, um, baptism always works. And so, for example, in the Roman perspective, the Roman Catholic perspective, um, baptism removes original sin no matter what. As long as the water hits your head, you're removed, you're, you're free from original sin. But the Reformers have said, no, that's not quite what we see in Scripture. We, re- we see there's a, there's a relationship in Scripture between baptism and faith and repentance. And so you can't have um, a baptism that is purely objective. It, it has an effect otherwise. On the other hand, uh, we're not going to say that baptism is justifying. And so, um, justification is by faith alone. And so, again, this is Roman Catholics who believe this. They're kind of in this corner of the, this is the Roman Catholic corner. Um, they're on the, that corner of the fence. But they would say that, that it's justifying, that um, through, through baptism we're justified, and we would deny that. Uh, but we'd also deny that it's purely memorial. So, um, it is an effective means of salvation, and we have to unpack what that means um, for each sacrament, but we want to be careful with our distinctions, but it does have an impact in the Christian life, and it does have an impact on, uh, on a spiritual level with people. And so what that leaves us in the middle with is sanctification. Um, and, and this is the, the key thing that the Reformed Confessions land on, is that, um, remember, we talked about this last week, how justification is an imputation of Christ's righteousness. Sanctification is an infusion of grace. So one is a legal declaration. One is a work of the Holy Spirit in your life gradually over time. So the sacraments work in the realm of sanctification. That's, um, that's where they work. So that means that it's not purely objective or purely subjective. There's a mix of God's objective promise to you and your reception of it. So it's, it's not purely either way. Um, but at the same time, it's not justifying, it's not making a legal declaration about you. And it's, neither is it purely a symbol. It actually works something out in you um, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So um, that's a lot of words on that question. Are there questions or, or concerns there? Or, um, okay. So let's, let's move on, because, and I think maybe these questions are backwards, but 162 answers the question, what is a sacrament? So <laughs> let's talk about what a sacrament is. A sacrament, question 162, is a holy regulation established by Christ and his church as a sign and seal, an outward display to those within the covenant of grace of the benefits that they have from Christ's mediation. It serves to strengthen and increase their faith and all other graces in them, and it obliges them to obey God and to witness to and cherish their love and fellowship with each other, and it distinguishes them from those who are outside the covenant. A few key things there. A sacrament is a holy regulation established by Christ. And so, um, later on, question 164 clarifies that there are two sacraments of the New Testament, two sacraments of the New Covenant, baptism and Lord's Supper, because those two Christ instituted. So, Matthew 28, Jesus says, Go therefore, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then, in all of the accounts of the Lord's Supper, uh, Luke 22 would be one, for example, he says, Take and eat. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me, right? So Christ explicitly commands us to baptize and to take the Lord's Supper. Um, some would say that there are seven sacraments. That's the Roman Catholic position, the Eastern Orthodox position. Um, some Lutherans actually say there's three sacraments. That's kind of a, I won't go into that, but. Um, <clears throat> We would say, you know, there's, there's things that are sacramental in nature, but that aren't sacraments proper. So, um, if you look at question 163, what are the parts of the sacrament? There are two parts of the sacrament. One is external, the physical sign, and used according to Christ's own directions. And the other is an internal spiritual grace signified by the external use. So, a sacrament at its core is really just a sign, an, a visible sign of an invisible reality. Um, there's the sign and the thing signified. So, in a sense, if you see, a, you know, everybody has a road sign on the road. Maybe, I don't know. I have a road sign on my road that says, I live on Sycamore Street, right? And so, the sign is not the street, but the sign points to the street, and it's pointing to a real reality. Um, same thing if there's a yield sign. 
or, or let's, a stop sign is better. Let's say there's a stop sign in your, in your neighborhood. Um, that sign itself isn't you stopping, isn't the rule, right? But if you don't stop there, you'll get pulled over, right? So the, the stop sign, while it's not physically standing in front of you and stopping you and making your car stop, um, it's, a, it's a sign telling you um, that there's a, a law over you that's, that's requiring you to stop at the stop sign, right? And so all sorts of things are sacramental. So marriage is sacramental. It's a visible sign of an invisible reality. In Ephesians 5, it talks about how marriage is a symbol, a mystery, which reveals Christ and his bride. Um, ordination is a kind of sacrament. We lay hands on people and we, we ordain them, and that's pointing to an invisible reality, that they're called by God, called by the church to this role. Um, and so that's a kind of sacrament. But these are not, this is the distinction that the catechism is making, these are not required of everybody, and they're not required as part of the new covenant. And so when we talk about the, the sacraments in our context, we're talking about those sacraments which pertain to the new covenant. And so baptism is the initiation sacrament into the new covenant, and the Lord's Supper is the um, renewal uh, rite, the renewal sacrament in the New Covenant. So um, that doesn't mean that those are the only two things that point to spiritual realities. There's all sorts of things that point to spiritual realities. Um, and the idea of having seven sacraments wasn't even really um, dogmatized until the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 in the, in the West. Um, there were theologians before that that said, if you ask them how many sacraments they would say, some would say two, some would say three, some would say seven. Some would say, oh, I have no idea. Everything's a sacrament <laughs> because everything is pointing to a higher reality. And so the Reformed have really made a, a clear distinction here between the sacraments of the new covenant and those things which are sacramental in nature. They're visible things that point to invisible realities, but they're not specifically dealing with the new covenant. And so um, that's why, so like, for example, when we call marriage, we say marriage is not a sacrament of the gospel. We're not saying that marriage isn't important or that, that you know, marriage doesn't have you know, spiritual value. Um, we're just simply saying that it's not required of all Christians and that it's not pertaining to the new covenant. So, <clears throat> so let's, talk about, let's talk just a little bit about the individual sacraments. Um, and maybe we might be able to get through baptism tonight, and then if, not, if, if we can't get through the Lord's Supper, we'll pick that up next week, and then we'll do some church and state stuff. But... So question 165. <clears throat> Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament in which Christ is ordained washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit as a sign and seal of our being joined to Christ, of the remission of our sins through his blood, of rebirth by the Spirit, of adoption and resurrection unto eternal life, and it is the means of solemnly admitting those baptized into the visible church and of their making a public commitment that they belong completely and only to the Lord. So well, let's walk through those one by one. Um, first of all, baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament, sacrament of the New, New Testament, New Covenant, same thing, which Christ has ordained, washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So let's go to Matthew, and let's, talk, let's look at where Jesus talks about um, baptism. So, um, if you go toward, let's go to Matthew 3 first. <clears throat> so, the, the two key passages here that point to Jesus' institution of baptism. So, um, chapter 3, verse 13 of the book of Matthew. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. A few things to notice here. Um, Jesus is implicitly affirming the baptism of John. And so John's baptism is true baptism of the new covenant. And there's debates about how that all works out, but um, Jesus is affirming that what John is doing is right. And baptism, by the way, is not something that was invented by John the Baptist, right? It's not something that was invented in the New Testament. Um, baptisms were all over the Old Testament. There's all these ritual washings that you see 
and um, Leviticus and Numbers, Deuteronomy, all those are dealing with, those are baptisms. So if you look at the Greek Old Testament, um, the word that's consistently used to describe those things is baptismos, baptisms. And so it also, we, we have lots of data from um, Second Temple Judaism um, in the time of Jesus that shows that these were, were still going on. And so, for example, um, if you remember the, the lame man at the waters of uh, Bethesda, who you know, there's, there's these pools at the, the Bethesda where if you get in, you'd be healed, is, is the belief. Um, this lame man is doing something that's very common. They're, they're wa- this is a ritual washing that's um, signifying their, their cleanness before God. And so that's really all John the Baptist is doing. John is, is saying, I'm baptizing for this specific purpose, for the repentance of sins. And Jesus is affirming um, the value of that and the importance of that. And he's, he's saying what John is doing is a good thing. Another thing to notice about this is uh, what happens when Jesus is baptized? There's another person of the Trinity, right? The Spirit of God descends when Jesus is baptized. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that this, pas- this passage is a descriptive passage. I'm not saying that this passage is um, saying that the Holy Spirit is going to descend like a dove on every person that's baptized. But you do see a connection between the Holy Spirit resting on Jesus and the baptism that Jesus is undergoing. So, now, that doesn't mean, some have taken this passage to mean that Jesus was somehow adopted by God at this point, that he was a man who was, you know, assumed into God at this point. I don't, that's not what this is saying, but um, this is a, an inaugural event to, to Jesus' um, institution of the new covenant. It's an inaugural event to his ministry. And you'll notice, uh, what does he do? You can look ahead at the next heading. What does he do immediately after his baptism? He goes into the wilderness to be tempted, right? And so in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that all were baptized in the Red Sea and all ate the same spiritual food and same spiritual drink. And so what Jesus is doing, so all these things prefigure baptism, and when you go back to the Old Testament, Noah, we talked about that in 1 Peter, but the Red Sea is also a kind of baptism. And Israel, according to Paul, is baptized in the Red Sea, and where do they go? They go straight into the wilderness, and they're there for 40 years. Jesus, he's baptized in the, he's baptized in the Jordan, and he goes straight into the wilderness for 40 days. And each of the temptations of Jesus correspond with the sin of Israel. So, for example, Jesus' first temptation, man shall not live by bread alone, that, but every word that comes from the mouth of God, um, that's corresponding to the manna incident where, where the Israelites are complaining about manna. And so that, that verse is referencing, if you look back at Deuteronomy, the, the exact verse he's referencing, it's in the context of a conversation about manna and how Israel sinned at that point. When um, you're not called to put your God to the test, that's a remembrance of Meribah and Massa, where Moses strikes the stone and gives them water. So this is a tangent. But <laughs> the point is, um, Jesus is inaugurating something very important here, and he's doing things that are um, typological and related to things that have gone on in the past. And so he's, he's simultaneously pointing back to the failure of Israel after their baptism in the Red Sea and pointing forward to what we're called to do and called to be following our baptisms. And what happens is his whole life, from his baptism in the Jordan to the inauguration of the New Covenant at um, the Last Supper, all of this is him establishing the new covenant by perfect fulfilling of the law. And so he goes in, he's, he's correcting Israel's wrongs in the wilderness, and he's correcting Israel's wrongs after their baptism through the Red Sea. Does that make sense? So, um, all of, all, everything, almost everything Jesus does is like a typological event, where he's, he's taking something where Israel failed or where Israel messed up, and he's just turning it around and pointing to the new heavens and the new earth. So, um, but yes, Christ instituted it there in Matthew 3. Let's jump ahead to Matthew 28. So in Matthew 3, he does it. In Matthew 28, he commands it, starting in verse 18. And you probably all know this well. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, Jesus flatly commands the disciples, go baptize people. Particularly go baptize the nations. Um, And that's connected to discipleship, 
to, to the discipline, the teaching of Jesus. And so we, by baptism, we're submitting to um, the discipline, the teaching that, that Jesus has given to his disciples. And the disciples are called to teach them all that I've commanded you. So this is Jesus' institution of baptism. And he says to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Next passage, we talked about Romans 6 last week, so let's go ahead and go to Galatians 3. Um, Paul is beginning to unpack some of this baptismal logic. Um, And so he says that baptism is a sign and a seal of us being joined together with Christ. So Romans 6 talks about this. You were baptized with Christ into his death, and you're raised to walk in newness of life. When I was baptized, that's the language they used when I was baptized. Um, I was seven But um, if you go to Galatians 3, starting in verse 23. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So here talking about baptism, he's talking about justification by faith. He's, He's affirming before we even get to the baptism thing that there's justification by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Okay? Talking about faith, we're sons of God through faith. Verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then famously, verse 28, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Same language he's using in Romans 9, Right? If you're, you're, if you're in Christ, if you're part of Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You're part of the true Israel. So, but there's this relationship between baptism and, and our union with Christ. So in Romans 6, he uses the same language. Baptism is a sign of our union with Christ in his death, and following that, our union with Christ in his resurrection. So baptism is a sign and a seal of that. Um, we won't turn there. It's a sign of remission of sins through the blood of Christ. Um, you can see that in, uh, for example, Acts 2, 38, when he says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Um, it's in the longer ending of Mark, depending on whether you take that to be um, scripture or not. I do, but I won't go into that. Um, so you see that language several times, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. The next one is interesting. Our, our catechism chooses to say, um, it uses a different word than the traditional language. So here it says, of rebirth by his spirit. Now, one of the passages it cites is Titus. We read this last week. Titus 3.5. <clears throat> now, in the original language, in, in the old 1646 and subsequent 1788-89, the American version, um, the word used there is of regeneration by his spirit. Now, um, some have taken that and said, well, the Reformed catechisms teach baptismal regeneration. But it's very important that we clarify something, because, and, and I'm glad that the modern language version did this. Our use of the term regeneration is, has shifted over the years. So if you're ever reading somebody like John Calvin, for example, when he uses the term regeneration, he is not talking about conversion. He's talking about new life, which may or may not include conversion. And so um, regeneration falls more into the cat for the reformers and for the reform for the people writing this. Regeneration falls more into the category of sanctification than justification. So we would put regeneration, this is the language you use today. If you're regenerate, then you are for sure saved no matter what, because you're an elect of God, right? That's not what the... Um, Reformers meant, that's not what the Confession of Faith meant. Now, I'm not saying go around and start telling people that, oh, we believe in baptismal regeneration because <laughs> that's very confusing. And, you know, we want to use, it's important that we use the language that we have today to communicate. We want to translate that. Um, we don't want to talk like we're all 17th century scholars because um, that's not who we are around all day, every day. Um, if you are, then maybe you should talk like that. But hopefully none of us are talking to 17th century scholars. So, <clears throat> But um, there is new life involved in baptism. 
because we're, we're buried with Christ in his death and raised to walk in newness of life, there is a new life, a resurrection life, on the other side of baptism. Also of adoption, that's related to our union with Christ, and resurrection, again, um, union with Christ. And it is the means of solidly admitting those baptized in the divisible church, so connection to the visible church. The visible church is defined by baptism to be admitted into the visible church, is to be baptized. And of their making a public commitment that they belong completely and only to the Lord. Now, we probably won't get to 166 about um, the relationship of that statement to infants, but um, what part of what's happening objectively in baptism is that we become committed to the Lord. We, co- we become committed to the Lordship of Christ. And so baptism places you in the visible church, and to be in the visible church places you under certain sets of expectations, um, certain expectations for patterns of behavior, for belief, right? Um, so if, if you're baptized, it is, it is expected that you believe in the Trinity. And if not, we work through church discipline channels to, to deal with that. It is expected that you live an upright life. And if you, if you live in unrepentant sin, then we deal with those issues as they come. But objectively, in baptism, we have the offer of all of these things, right? So um, it's like, think about the street sign, right? If you see a street sign, or if, or if you see like an exit sign off the highway, right? That exit sign is a sign that, okay, coming up, there's an exit. And you have the freedom to take that exit. And so baptism offers us, offers us all these things that have, have just been listed. There's a close connection between them. And, you know, the, the modern language person has kind of couched some of this language. Um, <clears throat> the... Um, the old language version says that baptism signs, seals, exhibits, and confers these things, but not necessarily at the moment of baptism. So, um, this baptism works in this way. The, the sign of baptism shows us the way to Christ and, and offers us to him. But we have to receive it by faith. And so the benefits that are offered to us by baptism are only received by faith. And so, this is the, the language that gets used in at least the um, traditional language, is that the benefits attached to baptism are not necessarily tied to the moment of administration. So we are not saying that every time we baptize someone, they are automatically getting regeneration, they're automatically getting remission of sins, they're automatically getting... We're not saying that. Um, but we are saying that God uses that. God uses the, um, the fact that we're engrafted into the visible church to offer those things to us, and we receive them by faith. So, um, I'm not going to talk about who should be baptized because we're out of time. But if you have questions about that, feel free to ask. Um, short answer, we believe that believing households should be baptized. So, believers and their children. Um, my favorite text for that is 1 Corinthians 7. So, if you want to read about that, about how children are made holy, are made saints by their, their believing parents, then um, you can look at that. Um, we also want to talk about 167. 167 is of great devotional use. So um, I was baptized, you know, if I was baptized, I don't know what now, over 15 years ago. Um, 18 years ago. I was baptized 18 years ago. Um, so what, what good does that do to me now, right? And so 167 answers that question. I won't talk about that, but um, that would be a, a good thing if, if you want some devotional material. Look at question 167 and, and read those um, read those footnotes and those, those references to the scripture. And um, I think that's of great value. So, um, so the choir, it's seven o'clock. The choir's not here to, uh, to practice. So I don't have to worry about being, uh, having to, to leave for them to come in, but I do want to give respect your time. So <laughs> are there any final questions, thoughts, concerns, uh, anything like that? Is this helpful? Is this clarifying? So, because um, I think that what what often happens is a lot of times um, Presbyterians tend to be functional memorialists. So we functionally think that baptism is just a sign. That baptism doesn't really actually uh, make an impact. But um, we need to. I think that at this point in history, our our impulse is way too far on that side. We need to, we need to kind of pull back and say, you know what, baptism actually has some objective realities tied to it. Um, so, 
Anyway. Well, let's pray, and we'll head out. Father, we thank you um, for your church, uh, for the, the visible church that you've placed us in, um, for the fact that even in our dirtiness and our sin and our struggles and the fact that terrors grow up among us, that you're still gracious and merciful and you, you've promised that um, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And so we ask that you would uh, be, be earnest to your promises, would you um, hold to your promises, and we know that you will. Um, and Father, we thank you for baptism, that you offer us the gospel through it, that you offer us new life through it. And we ask that you would teach us to receive those things by faith and to continue to um, turn to the, the reality of our baptism, that you have called us your own through it, um, to rest in you and in your salvation. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.